Welcome to the Cato Institute for our policy forum today, Can Free Speech Be Progressive? We've had a great turnout. I appreciate everyone coming for what promises to be an extremely interesting discussion uh, by several leading scholars in this area. Before I begin, let's, I will begin as usual with some administrative notes. In particular, what we will start out with is some statements from each of our participants followed by, I think, a, a period of five to 10 minutes in which they, if they wish, can respond to one another. Then we will go to Q&A, which will include your questions and also any questions uh, that seem apt from Twitter. And then around 1.30 or so, we will break for lunch where the conversations can continue. Um, I would ask at this point that everyone turn off their cell phones so we can uh, have an extended period of quiet for, to hear what our speakers have to say. I want to go quickly to our speakers because they have what is important to say, but I thought I would say something in passing here, which is the following. Um, it seems to me that there are two kinds of reasons why we value freedom of speech, at least two. And one of them is in fact fear, right? That is, we grant each other freedom of speech because we are afraid what you might do if you had power and were able to govern speech. And similarly, you are afraid what I might do if I had power and could censor or suppress speech. So there's a mutual fear that leads to a kind of equilibrium of fear in which we end up with a pretty good result, which is an open political system, freedom of speech. But I think there's another and better reason and more noble reason why we have freedom of speech. And that is because we want to make sure we can hear one another and we might, and it's a kind of selfish reason too, which is I want to hear what the other person has to say because it might be valuable to me. Now we live in an atmosphere today in which there's a lot of forces that suggest don't listen to the other person. They don't have anything other, anything valuable to say. In fact, they are a threat to you or they are simply trying to manipulate or fool you. But that's just not something that's very compatible with freedom of speech. Now in the spirit of this second argument, the idea of rationality and argument and discovering new things and improving yourself really, we are having this forum today. Uh, for progressives, and I do hope there are progressives who are listening in on this, and I believe there are, this will be an, a very interesting kind of debate and argument and conversation among people who share many of their uh, assumptions. But if you're not a progressive, I think it's an incredible opportunity to listen in on a debate and argument that's going on among others. And you, there's something very valuable about that that we're, in some ways missing too much today, something we might learn from those other debates. And above all, of course, there's the other element, which is this might be the future of our country for a variety of reasons uh, in regard to freedom of speech. We owe this uh, event today to all three of the people on the panel, but in particular, uh, Mike Seidman is important. He is, Lewis Michael Seidman is Carmack Waterhouse Professor of Constitutional Law at Georgetown University Law Center. He's the author of the article that prompted our event today, 
can free speech be progressive, which has been on the internet for some time and will appear soon, I believe, in the Columbia Law Review. After graduating from Harvard in law school in 1971, Professor Seidman served as a law clerk for a couple of legendary people, J. Skelly Wright of the DC Circuit and US Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall. He was then a staff attorney with the DC Public Defender Service until joining the Law Center faculty in 1976. He teaches a variety of courses in the field of constitutional and criminal law. He's the co-author of a constitutional law casebook and the author of many articles concerning criminal justice and constitutional law. His most recent books, of many, are on constitutional disobedience in 2012 and silence and freedom in 2007. In 2011, Seidman was elected to membership in the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. I must say I'm glad this is a chance to welcome back Mike Decato. He visits often and always makes a great contribution. Welcome back, Mike. Well, thank you so much for that generous introduction. I'm really grateful to the folks at Cato, and I'm grateful to you folks for uh, coming out. Um, as grateful as I am, I think this is kind of an odd forum for this discussion uh, for a couple of reasons. First, uh, the audience for the article that John mentioned was um, fellow progressives and not uh, libertarians. So it seems a little strange defending my point of view before uh, people or many people who, as it were, just kind of overheard what I had <laughs> to say directed at other people. Um, my central point was and is that although the First Amendment has many virtues and although it may be useful to progressives in some isolated cases, uh, progressives who think that the First Amendment can be used to advance the progressive program in any systematic and meaningful way are kidding themselves. Um, a second oddity relates to my reasons for thinking this. Um, so I have to say in my worst and most paranoid, self-doubting moments, I sometimes think that Cato loves to invite me here uh, because my ideas are so easily discredited. Uh, you guys can say, um, if the left really believes this crazy stuff, it's no wonder that uh, more and more people are libertarians. So what's odd about this situation is my guess is um, many libertarians are actually going to agree with my basic point, although I have to warn you, we are going to part ways when it comes to ultimate conclusions. Uh, in any event, before we talk about how we've gotten where we are, I think we need to talk honestly about where we are. And the fact of the matter is that in recent years, a very conservative Supreme Court has seized upon the First Amendment to implement um, what I would characterize as a right-wing agenda of deregulation. Um, as many others have observed, it's turned free speech into a kind of new Lochner. So instead of providing a shield for the powerless, the First Amendment has often become a sword used by people at the apex of American political power. Among the court's victims, proponents of campaign finance reform, opponents of cigarette addiction, the LBGTQ community, 
labor unions, animal rights advocates, environmentalists, targets of hate speech, and abortion providers. And while striking down laws that protected all of those groups, the same court upheld a statute that cut off all funding for colleges and universities that had the temerity not to allow military recruits on campus, recruiting on campus, and a statute that criminalized purely political speech that constituted neither incitement nor a clear and present danger when the speech materially supported a group that the State Department had labeled as a foreign terrorist organization. Now, for people who study the First Amendment, none of that is news. Uh, but where I depart from other progressives is, uh, and where I think a lot of people in this audience will agree with me, is I don't think those cases necessarily reflect a distortion of the First Amendment. Rather, they constitute a kind of delayed presentation of traits that are embedded in the DNA of the First Amendment. So why do I think that? Well, when the Supreme Court's effort to control economic legislation collapsed in the late 1930s, progressives who at that time controlled the court had to decide what to do about judicial activism. And the settlement that they came up with and the dominated constitutional law for more than a generation it was embodied, for those of you who are uh, lawyers, it's embodied in the famous footnote four of the Caroline Products case. And what it said was this, unlike the bad old days of substantive due process, the economic sphere was now in the realm of ordinary politics. So action in that sphere was by and large discretionary and the government was free within a broad range to readjust economic entitlements without judicial interference. In contrast, ordinary political actors could not be trusted to protect civil rights and civil liberties. And the result was that in that sphere, results were mandatory rather than discretionary, and judges should use the Constitution to check political actors. Now, the trouble with that resolution is that it rests on a contradiction. And the contradiction becomes apparent as soon as one realizes that under modern conditions, exercise of speech rights requires the possession of property. A speaker has to be somewhere when she speaks, and the somewhere has to be owned by someone. Moreover, under modern conditions, the speaker has to use some means of amplification, and the means of amplification generally constitute property. And one should add, in the US, most property is privately held, and in my view, and in, in the view of most progressives, it's unfairly distributed. So that means something has to give. Uh, one could imagine a court saying that because the speech rights rest on property rights, therefore property rights have to be redistributed so as to make speech the speech opportunity meaningful. Uh, in a radically different political culture, a court might say that but certainly not in our culture. In the culture we live in, the more likely conclusion is that because speech rights are fixed and not subject to political adjustment, therefore property rights can't be subject to political adjustment either. In other words, Lochner lives. Now that's been very abstract. Let me make it concrete in the context of a couple of cases. 
So last term, the Supreme Court decided a case called uh, Janus versus Asks Me, where it held that it violated the free speech rights of government workers to compel them to pay fees to support union collective bargaining efforts. Uh, the court thought that the requirement forced the workers to support a political cause that they did not necessarily favor, and it therefore violated the First Amendment. There's a lot to be said about that case, but one thing that hasn't gotten enough attention is that the case turns on an assumption about property rights. That is to say, it turns on the assumption that these fees belong to the workers in the first place. If the government's allowed to adjust property rights, then the free speech claim evaporates. Suppose that instead of induct deducting the fees from workers' paychecks, the government simply paid them less in the first place and then gave the surplus to the unions. Then it wouldn't be the workers' money that was supporting the speech they opposed, and there would be no free speech violation. So what the court, in effect, held was that because free speech rights are mandatory and fixed, therefore the property distribution had to be fixed as well. Now many progressives might respond to that by saying that's why Janus is wrongly decided. After all, Janus is a five to four decision. It could have come out the other way. Unfortunately, though, the relationship between property and speech runs deeper and is not as easy to entangle as, disentangle as you might think. To see how deep the problem runs, consider a second case that progressives love to hate, Citizens United, where the court held that it violated the First Amendment to allow corporations to make independent expenditures supporting political candidates. That case was effectively lost in the Supreme Court when the justices started asking about media corporations, like, say, the New York Times. Taken seriously, the government position and the progressive position would mean that it would not violate the uh, free speech right for the government to prohibit the New York Times from endorsing Hillary Clinton for pres president. Now, I think ownership of media companies poses a big problem for progressive support for free speech. These companies, companies like the Times, the Washington Post, Fox News, Facebook, they're owned by very wealthy people. And progressives think more generally that markets don't distribute property fairly and that the government needs to do something about it. I agree, but then why assume that the markets distribute property that makes speech possible fairly? And if the government should be permitted to control uh, the speech of Citizens United, then it is a hard question why it can't control the speech of the New York Times. Now, as I've already said, I think many people in this audience are going to agree with that. It comes as no news to libertarians that speech rights and property rights are tied together. That's why they have a consistent position of claiming that both should be constitutionally fixed. We don't, however, agree about the ultimate conclusion. The ultimate conclusion that I draw from this is that if we're serious about free speech, then we have to be much more serious about an equitable distribution of the property that makes speech possible, and that government has a role to play in creating that equitable distribution. At that point, obviously, we part company. But since I've been giving my fellow progressives a hard time, 
I want to suggest that uh, conservatives have not been entirely consistent about this issue either. Consider, for example, the standard conservative position with regard to the supposed free speech violations on college campuses. Um, a good example is a particularly ugly incident involving Charles Murray, who was shouted down at Middlebury College. Remember now, the conservative position is that free speech means that, uh, that outcomes that are reached in the private sphere have to be respected. Speech is free when the government makes no laws, and it's the government that's a threat to liberty. Um, now, the problem for conservatives is Middlebury is a private college. It follows, I think, that from the conservative position, Middlebury has a First Amendment right to use its property the way it wants to use it. And if you don't like what Middlebury does, then um, the conservative answer is don't give them money, or if you're a student there, go to some other college. There's a free competitive market in college education. When conservatives instead complain that Middlebury is violating free speech rights, they're embracing the view that progressives have long insisted on, that there is a problem with private power and not just public power, and that people are not necessarily free when the government fails to act and permits private people, like Middlebury College, to invade freedom of speech. That's not to say that I approve of what happened in, at Middlebury, and that leads me to the final point I want to make, a point, incidentally, that I don't make in the article. I make a sharp distinction between free speech law and free speech sensibilities. First Amendment law, by my lights, is at least mostly a force for evil. It's dominated by the discussion of things like the exact meaning of content neutrality, the difference between a limited public forum and a designated public forum, or the original public meaning of free speech as it applies to things that the framers didn't know anything about. Um, and as interesting as those discussions are, and as much as I like to torture my students uh, with them, uh, none of that has much to do with the role that speech ought to play in a modern, well-functioning republic. They're really beside the point. And worse yet, they lead to First Amendment decisions that sometimes actually restrict conversation and, and information. For example, the court's decision last term to use the free speech clause to strike down a law that gave women information about the healthcare clinics they were attending, about whether they offered abortion, or restricting the government's ability to require cigarette companies to provide truthful information about the dangers of their product. So that's for free speech law. Free speech sensibilities is quite different. By that term, what I mean is an openness to new ideas, a spirit, as Learned Hand said, that is not too sure that it's right, a curiosity about how someone who you disagree with might in good faith hold views that you don't share, a willingness to engage in open-ended dialogue, a readiness to listen and to learn. Um, a free speech sensibility is absolutely crucial to a well-functioning democracy, and I worry every day that we are losing it. And by the way, it's especially crucial in a university setting. It would be very strange if students showed up at college already knowing everything 
uh, that uh, they have to learn there. And one thing they need to learn is how to have a free speech sensibility. And university faculty and administrators need to think how hard about how to instill that sensibility. Um, at least in the case of law schools, a first step in that direction might be to disabuse them of the religious aura that often surrounds First Amendment law, to teach them, in other words, to be open, curious, and not so sure that they are right about the value of free speech. Um, and I guess, I, guess, I guess the very last thing I want to say is one of the many reasons I enjoy coming here is because as much as I disagree with many things that people at this institution believe, um, what goes on in this building, just on a regular basis, models the kind of free speech sensibility that we need as a country. And I am just delighted anytime you want to make fun of me <laughs> to invite me here to uh, participate in that modeling. I don't, I don't know that anyone has ever said anything from this podium, so we'll have to invite you to talk to the donors. <laughs> the, of all that, I learned much there, provoked me much, but I learned one thing that just shocked me, which is that Mike Seidman has moments of self-doubt. Who knew? Our second uh, speaker will be Ronald Collins. Uh, have you been here before? I don't yeah, know. Uh, return, returning also. Uh, Professor Collins is the Harold S. Shuffleman Scholar at the University of Washington School of Law. He specializes in First Amendment law. Before coming to the University of Washington in 2010, he was a scholar at the excellent Museum's First Amendment Center here in Washington. He clerked for Justice Hans Lind on the Oregon Supreme Court and was a Supreme Court fellow under Chief Justice Warren Burger. He's the author, co-author, editor of more than a dozen books, including The Fundamental Homes, when we were talking about uh, Justice Homes in the Green Room. Uh, we Must Not Be Afraid to Be Free, Stories About Free Speech in America, Nuanced Absolutism, Floyd Abrams and the First Amendment, another Cato person we'd love to have, Floyd Abrams, On Dissent, Its Meaning in uh, America, The Judge, 26 Machiavellian Lessons in 2017, and now just this year, Robotica, Speech Rights and Artificial Intelligence, a very interesting topic. His next book comes out in March and is titled People versus Ferlinghetti, The Poet, the Poem, and the Freedom of Speech. And as Mike and I was talking, for some of the students that uh, your students and our, everyone's students, Lawrence Ferlinghetti will be a new name, I suspect. Um, Ron is also the book editor for SCOTUS blog and editor-in-chief of FIRE. It's an online First Amendment library, which is an excellent resource for First Amendment and the founder and co-chair of the First Amendment Salon. He publishes a weekly blog titled First Amendment News, which is the first to profile Professor Seidman's essays and led to all of us being here today. It's a delight uh, to be here um, because um, I've always found uh, when I've come here uh, that speech is uninhibited, robust, and wide open. 
And in that regard, I certainly share uh, Mike Seidman's views that this is the kind of forum uh, that embodies the First Amendment, in my view, at its working best. And so, um, but that there should be more of it. And I, too, welcome the opportunity to come back and um, have people agree with me, but more importantly, to disagree with me. Because I feel uncomfortable being in any audience uh, with people who feel too much uh, like I do, so um, feel free. Um, prior, it, it was, you know, when I first read Mike Seidman's um, essay, I thought, wow, this is a real mind opener. Uh, and I thought, this is exactly the kind of discourse that we should be having about the First Amendment. And so um, may the article long live and may it open many minds. And it certainly got me thinking about a lot of things. Um, heretofore, I thought I was a progressive. I had uh, worshipped at the altars of Louis Brandeis and Thurgood Marshall. I worked for what I thought was a progressive judge uh, in Oregon. I worked at the American Civil Liberties Union. I worked as a legal aid lawyer. I voted for Obama. Um, and I was pro-gay rights, pro-reproductive rights, all of those things. And then I read my essay and I started to think, oh my god, maybe I'm not progressive after all. Uh, um, you know, and it kind of led to a therapeutic moment. Uh, I feared that, uh, well, I had friends at Cato, I had friends at Heritage, I had friends at these other groups, and maybe, maybe I really wasn't liberal after all. Maybe I wasn't progressive after all. I, 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 I'm now starting to find that there's a great divide between liberals and progressives. So in all of those respects, I've kind of come away like uh, schizophrenic. Um, uh, which is um, something that uh, very much um, helps uh, support therapists and so on. Uh, so you've given to that cause. Um, the, um, I think, the, as I've said, that Mike's essay gets us to think about what it means, those of us who think we're progressive, what it means to be progressive. I mean, I thought Thurgood Marshall was progressive, but um, the last time I checked, he signed on to Buckley versus Vallejo. So he may not have been progressive after all. I, I want to talk about others but in a moment. But I want to make six points uh, that I think, and, and there could be many more. And uh, by the way, the, the folks at the American Constitution Society, this is the kind of program that they should be having. Uh, and I, I will certainly do everything in my power uh, to see that this, uh, uh, these thoughts find their way to that venue. Um, so first of all, um, there is something, there's an eye-opening, the first point I would make is there's an eye-opening realism in Mike's essay. It kind of puts aside so much of the hypocrisy and, you know, selective defenses of speech and, and really kind of moves the discourse from, if you will, law and doctrine to political philosophy. Uh, I, I thought it, it in, in many respects, um, or I should say in some respects, we qualify that, um, Mike's essay gets us to think about is there something very, very dangerous about the First Amendment? The First Amendment in its essence, is there something very dangerous about it? You know, and it's all well and fine to talk about Holmes and the marketplace of ideas and truth prevailing there, but they forget what he said in Gitlow versus New York. And it is sometimes it fails. Sometimes it doesn't work. When Hugo Black wrote his dissent in In Re Anastopolo, and he closed it with the words, we must not be afraid to be free. Think about that. 
there was something very dangerous about the First Amendment. That's what gets us to fear it. And so I think Mike's essay gets us to move, if you will, from blind black and white doctrine to larger questions about political philosophy. Questions that the students of Leo Strauss years ago when conservatives still wrote about the First Amendment took seriously. So that's the first point I would make. The second point I would make is that there is much in contemporary First Amendment law that is at war with basic tenets of conservatism. So let me just read you a passage um, and tell me if you can identify the author. The justices have come to equate sex with speech. Most of the speech cases involving entertainment probably consisted of simulated moans of ecstasy that the females are required to utter in order to excite their male viewers. That's not Catherine McKinnon. It's Robert Bork. Robert Bork, all right. Um, could Robert Bork be uh, confirmed uh, if he were nominated to the Supreme Court today? Could he? Uh, he opposed much about many things about commercial speech. His view was very uh, confined, if you will, but he was a card-carrying conservative. What about George Anastopoulos? All right, one of the prominent First Amendment conservative thinkers, opposed to sexual expression, opposed to commercial expression, opposed to campaign finance. What about more recently David Lowenthal, No Liberty for License? And um, here we see him opposing the excesses of First Amendment law. I mean, would they be in favor of so much of the jurisprudence of the First Amendment involving violent videos? Would they be in favor of First Amendment jurisprudence that establishes a First Amendment right to watch um, uh, animal cruelty uh, videos? Would they? Uh, he thinks not. And who wrote the foreword to the book? R.B. Mansfield, a very prominent conservative. So um, I think that much of what Michael says in his essay if one is to be true, all right, let us not speak falsely now. The hour grows late, to paraphrase Bob Dylan. Much of what he says about progressives could hold equally true for conservatives. So, uh, I mean, it's these days you think that when you talk about the First Amendment, many times from a conservative point of view, if I can take the liberty, it begins at campaign finance and speech codes. And really beyond that, where does it lend? Where does it lead? I think in many respects, the Cato Institute has become um, the new, the Cato Institute is the old ACLU in many respects, um, maybe well, maybe as well the Institute for Free Speech. But even in that regard, I, I tried to find out, and I don't know if Cato filed uh, an amicus brief uh, in Garcetti versus Sabellos, the government speech case, where the First Amendment claim was denied, or Holder versus Humanitarian Law Project. Um, those, I think, are very important First Amendment cases. First Amendment cases, by the way, that we progressives, I can call myself a progressive, Mike, uh, think the court got wrong and decided. So uh, as much as I think that Cato is really a force for defending free speech, and I applaud it, um, I don't know where it stood on those two cases. So, um, and, and maybe they, they did defend the First Amendment claim, and if so, I stand corrected, or I'd, I'd like to know about it. So I guess my third point is, um, it cannot be denied, it simply cannot be denied that free speech is on the run in the liberal community. I mean, there's just no doubt. I mean, I just, as a member of the Maryland ACLU, 
which I guess is a liberal group but not a progressive group. I, I, I don't know. But the, um, it has all sorts of seven, seven pages of wonderful things that I'm happy to give my money to. But there's nothing in here about free speech, and it's not the first time. Uh, the silence from many free speech groups on, on the liberal side is deafening. Uh, it's, David Cole is fighting for the soul of the First Amendment in the ACLU. I mean, just recently, Governor Cuomo um, decided that he was going to attack the NRA by threatening banks and financial institutions with uh, consequences if they had any dealings with or if they in any way supported the FDA. I mean, the NRA, excuse me. <laughs> Big step there. Big slip there. Uh, um, uh, so the National ACLU signed on to an amicus brief supporting the NRA's First Amendment claims. The New York Civil Liberties Union took issue with that. All right? uh, David Cole, I thought, made an excellent point. If they can do this to the NRA, if the state of New York can do this to the NRA, the state of Mississippi can do it to Planned Parenthood. What about that? So my question is, given this divide in the liberal community, which of the following people are liberal, or better still, which of the following people are progressive? Robert L. Carter, all right? The fellow, the prominent um, uh, member and lawyer of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People who argued NAACP versus Alabama. Is he, Michael, progressive? He defended hate speech. What about Eleanor Holmes Norton? She signed on to the ACLU brief in Brandenburg versus Ohio, a hate speech case and successfully defended a white supremacist group in the Supreme Court in the case of Carroll versus Princess Anne in 1968. Is she progressive? Justice Thurgood Marshall, your own boss, who signed on to uh, Brandenburg versus Ohio and Buckley versus Vallejo, is he progressive? Justice Brennan was the architect, the main architect of Buckley versus Vallejo. Is he progressive? Um, what about Larry Tribe, Walter Dellinger, and Tom Goldstein? They argued in favor of commercial speech in Nike versus Caskey. Are they progressive? Or is this Robert Post, C.N. Wynne Baker, Steve Sheffrin, who opposed commercial speech? Are they progressive? Uh, what about Catherine McKinnon and Richard Delgado? Are they progressive, Michael? Um, or is it Nadine Strassen and the old left of the ACLU? Who are the progressives here? And finally, uh, there's the case of the amicus brief filed by the National ACLU in McCullen versus Coakley, and they defended uh, buffer zones around abortion clinics. The Supreme, so the ACLU defended the facial constitutionality of these buffer zones, all right? National ACLU. The Supreme Court struck them down, nine zip, nine zip. Were the four justices on the left on that case progressive? Or was the National ACLU progressive? So these are questions that as a progressive, Mike, I need you to answer, so to just help me with my identity crisis here. Um, you know, it's hard enough in this culture being a progressive or a liberal uh, without these kind of, uh, if you will, uh, psycho psychoanalytic quandaries. Um, so the, I, I think there's free speech law and there's free speech culture. He calls it free speech sensibilities. I call it free speech culture. I don't know that they're the same. I like the word, Mike, sociology that you use. Because if you look at the culture, 
The culture of free speech in America is far beyond free speech doctrine. It's way beyond it. So if liberals and or if progressives complaint with the First Amendment is the First Amendment as doctrine, what about the First Amendment as culture? All right? It seems to me that the attack on the doctrine has to go to the culture as well. The culture is not necessarily what you see here. The culture, if you will, is what is portrayed in my first book with David Scover, The Death of Discourse. Point five, can progressives have an open mind? I mean, I think this is the key thing. Um, if anything, the functional import, the functional import of the First Amendment is to leave your ideological baggage at the door. That we as society, when it comes to speech and religion, all right, we have to have an important measure of tolerance. The system doesn't work unless you allow for that principle. So when Michael says, and maybe I got the quote wrong, Mike, but I said, I heard you say the First Amendment is a force for evil. Again, this brings us to the question of political philosophy. It may well be that at the end of the day, the real problem here, or even at the beginning of the day, the real problem isn't First Amendment doctrine. It isn't the Roberts Court or the Rehnquist Court. The real problem, perhaps, is the First Amendment itself. All right? And that's what this essay, I think, in many significant respects, gets us to think about. Which brings me to my final point. Um, those who defend a robust form of free speech under the First Amendment ought not to deny the cultural downsides of a search of, of such a jurisprudence. It is one thing to defend a free speech right, but I think it's another to be hypocritical about its real world consequences, all right? One may well disagree with Catherine McKinnon and her contemporary counterparts when it comes to pornography and whether or not it should be protected in the first, under the First Amendment. But does this mean that there is absolutely no possibility for the exploitation of our view of women, for the commercialization, if you will, of sex? I come neither to defend nor oppose it, but I think this is a question among others. When you talk about campaign finance, it may well be that you think Buckley and its progeny were rightly decided. But this does mean that money has no uh, detrimental impact on the culture. Uh, the idea that truth will prevail in the marketplace, it makes for a fine, if you will, uh, statement. But is it true? Does it always prevail in the marketplace? So these are the sorts of things that I think, among others, that Mike's essay gets us to think about in ways that uh, articles and other scholarship have not in a long time. And Michael, I thank you very much uh, for opening our minds to these important questions. Thank you. And you're going to send me your therapy bill? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I will. <laughs> Our third speaker has also uh, appeared several times at Cato, most recently at our First Amendment conference in 2017. Uh, Robert F. Bauer holds two positions at New York University Law School. He's professor of practice, a distinguished scholar in residence, as well as co-director of the Legislative and Regulatory Process Clinic. 
In his 40 years of legal practice, he has provided counseling on representation on matters involving the regulation of political activity before the courts and administrative agencies of, uh, of national political parties, for national political parties, candidates, political committees, individuals, federal office holders, corporations, and trade associations, and tax-exempt groups. Uh, he served as White House counsel to President Obama in 2018 and returned to private practice in June of that year and was general counsel to Obama for America, the president's campaign organization in 2008 and 2012. In 2013, President Obama appointed Bob to the co-chairmanship of the Presidential Election Commission on Election Administration. He is the author of several books and articles and writes about campaign finance and other topics in political law at More, More Self Money Hard Law, a blog I recommend to you. He will soon publish a book on political reform, and I expect that when he does, he will return to the Cato Institute, and we will have a book forum on it. Bob Bauer. Well, thank you very much. I very much liked uh, Mike Seidman's piece, though I had, there's much that I disagree in it, but one of the marks of a very well-written piece of scholarship like that is that I keep on thinking through my objections and wondering whether they're well-founded. So uh, it s sits with you for a while, I mean, it really does. And that is a mark of the, I think, penetrating thinking that went into the piece. Let me begin, because I have both sort of an abstract but also a very practical approach uh, to the topic and to the objections that I'm going to raise to Mike's piece, or at least the questions that I'm going to raise about it. Uh, let me begin by just restating a little bit the power or, or the, the strong terms with which Mike establishes his proposition. He sees speech as being fundamentally connected uh, to property entitlements, which is his first challenge to the suggestion that free speech can be progressive. And by progressive, he means a support for an activist government that strives for the public good. And his basic position is that uh, free speech simply does not advance progressive values. And what he said today, and I'm quoting today from what he just said a few minutes ago, but it's consistent with his article, it doesn't advance free speech values in what he says is, quote, in any systematic or meaningful way. Now, his view, and I think it's important to set it up so I can go from here to what I'd like to say most about it, his view is that if you look at the history of free speech and the actual content of the doctrine and its application over time, you will see that free speech is, and I'm quoting him, a sword used by people at the apex of power, uh, one that, quote, stands in the way of affirmatively advancing, close quote, the progressive agenda, one that is, quote, not consistently used for progressive purposes. So it's a very, very strong view of what we would have to want in the First Amendment to believe that it's progressive, which is to say, in effect, we win all the time. And he describes progressivism as a fighting faith. And he says he doesn't think that we ought to be valuing, uh, on a progressive outlook, a fully neutral government. We care about outcomes. And if we care about outcomes, uh, then if we conclude that free speech stands in the way of achieving those outcomes, we should have our doubts about it. And I have a doubt about that particular position that I would like to elaborate on a little bit here. I would also like to suggest that there's some tension between that very strong position on the one hand and the argument that there's a sort of conservative DNA built into free speech on the other. I'm not sure there is a conservative DNA built into free speech. Let me begin with that. But if it were, that would not be the same thing as saying that 
free speech is important to us only if, or would be important to us, would be valuable to us only if it meant we effectively won all the time. I'm, I'm, I don't know that those two propositions are necessarily consistent. But let me reframe the debate somewhat. So this is not quite evading Mike's point, but it's reestablishing it, but it's putting the argument on what I think are progressive grounds. Now I am, I'm gonna start by acknowledging bias. I am, I believe myself to be progressive. But I also have admit I have strong uh, libertarian instincts, and I believe those are rooted both in uh, family history, uh, upbringing, all sorts of influences that I must say that I probably couldn't justify by you know, reasoning from first principles. It's just sort of the way that I am, and I recognize that. But I certainly am a, a progressive, but I want to, to note that one of the reasons I hang around people like samples is I kind of like libertarians. Um, so let me take Mike on his own terms, and here is my reframing of his position. If he believes that free speech is not progressive, my argument would be more broadly conceived and stated at a different level, the First Amendment is progressive. And the reason I go to the First Amendment is that I'm very concerned that the First Amendment has been repeatedly reduced to a question of atomized individual speech and whether it will be permitted. I think it's important that it is permitted for a variety of reasons, but I don't want to focus on that today. I want to focus on free speech as an absolutely necessary component of effective political organizing and action. And I believe that the ability to do politics, and that's a phrase I like to use, the ability to do politics is grounded in a First Amendment associational right which is too often reduced to the notion that it's essentially an aggregate of individual speech rights. It's much more than that, in my view. To me, speech is action, largely indistinguishable in the dynamics of political organizing and concerted efforts toward common political objectives. If you're worried about talking back, to, as the phrase sometimes goes, to the man, you have to be on the ground, working with people who don't have those resources and whose hopes of affecting the outcome of political action is to essentially build coalitions and operate in concerted fashion so that the political aspirations of the one are amplified by a coalition of the many and advanced by the action of concerted political behavior, political objective seeking. To this end, I, to rescue speech from its sort of atomized, isolated position and to join it to this notion of action and to the importance of that associational element that is too often devalued in recent free speech doctrine, let me go to one source of my inspiration on this point, and that's Hannah Arendt and her book, uh, The Promise of Politics. And that's where she takes speech and action and she connects them. It's not in a conversation about American First Amendment jurisprudence, but in thinking at a sort of philosophical abstract level of what speech means to the conduct of politics as an activity valuable in itself protected under the First Amendment. And I just want to um, bear for a minute with me on the, on the abstraction here, and then I'll go to some concrete points and particularly about campaign finance. What does this action that we're trying to protect consist? It is in essence an effort, and I'm quoting uh, Arendt, to initiate a sequence to forge a new chain. So it's about reform. It's about changing the way things are. And the political leader in the launch of these initiatives and taking action is, and I'm now quoting Arendt, someone who seeks out companions to help him or her carry it out. 
Central to this concept that Arendt outlines is the assembly of men and women coming together to pursue collective purposes. And unlike the unitary focus on speech, on self-expression, action must be pursued by citizens in active engagement with one another for again, to quote Arendt, quote, it is only action that cannot even be imagined outside the society of men, she uses men, I'll say men and women. It is a realm of freedom properly valued on its own terms. It is the antithesis of mere rule through which the elite issues orders to followers who are expected to obey them. And I'll quote, finally, my last quote from Arendt is, the commonplace notion that every political community consists of those who rule and are ruled rests on a suspicion of action. Action is a threat to the status quo. The ability to mobilize in response to the status quo, which I think is a progressive value, that is itself uh, a defining feature of action in which speech is integral. So let me say a few words now that I, I'll, I'll climb down from there uh, to a more concrete topic that I've been very much involved in, discussed for many hours with John Samples, whose, books on campaign, whose book on campaign finance reform I very much admire, and talk for a second about the progressive objection to campaign finance reform. This campaign finance regulation is a commitment of my political party. As a matter of fact, it's a commitment of the president of the United States that I served and uh, who I enormously admire and respect. I don't share it. I've never shared it. I've had profound skepticism about the mode of regulation that defines campaign finance restrictions in the United States over the last 40 years. That is not to say, by the way, I don't believe in political reform, I do. And I have some views, for example, on some modes of public financing that would probably be anathema to large numbers of the members of this audience, or at least people affiliated with this institution. But the restrictive framework within which modern campaign finance reform has taken place is one that I believe in many respects has simply gone well beyond what progressives ought to tolerate when they keep this mobilizing objective in mind. And it is in fact precisely the attack of campaign finance regulation in the modern era on the ability of groups to organize that led organized labor in particular to break with the reform community of which it had been a part in the response to McCain-Feingold in 2000 and afterwards. And the crux of the labor movement's objection was the so-called coordination rule that's meant to enforce contribution limits. And in effect, just to take a, something, I don't want to take us very far afield here, but to very oversimplify the issue, if we have a contribution limit and Bauer uh, wants to give uh, money to samples, uh, which I think you probably would take, for, um, but albeit, albeit, not for, albeit not for legal or legitimate purposes. Um, Bauer wants to give money to candidate samples. Uh, that's the contribution, and that's the direct payment of cash to samples for his use to support the campaign. But it may be that I actually coordinate with my candidate to have a third party spend money for that candidate's benefit. So I go, for example, to the AFL-CIO, and I say, I think really highly of John Samples, and I would like you to run some advertisements that stress this particular theme that I think is central to John's campaign prospects. And the coordination rules are designed to attack that way of getting around the contribution limits. Look at it as a conspiracy between me and John to make sure somebody else spends their resources for John's benefit and somehow do not account for that spending uh, as a contribution. 
And labor was deeply concerned about that, deeply concerned that in the course of trying to do what it did on behalf of its membership, it would be sort of caught up in its coalition building with these coordination rules. And I just want to quote from their brief before the Supreme Court, just because I want to give this a kind of concrete flavor. Does a political party coordinate its expenditures uh, with third parties if a party official publicly identifies the party's principal campaign themes in the states where the party hopes to prevail? Is the result different if the same message is delivered in a private strategy session? And if so, how many party activists must be present before a meeting loses its private character? Has a union official coordinated, that is, acted in cooperation or concert with a political party, if he meets with the congressional leadership to plan strategy in support of the party's legislative agenda, including union expenditures in support of that agenda? If a trade association lobbyist participates in planning party activities during the early stages of a campaign season, will the use of that information she has learned about the party's plans turn all of the subsequent expenditures into contributions because there was some improper coordination? So to them, it was a threat to organizing principles. So I just want to stress that, yes, I think the free speech uh, right shakes out a lot of different ways. I don't view it, frankly, as having a conservative DNA, but I certainly believe it in times can be misused, and I'll get to the way in which it can be misused in a moment. But I also think the debate benefits from looking at the First Amendment more broadly, and on that ground, I think progressives could easily stand because of the importance of grassroots organizing and taking the powerless and amplifying their voices through conservative political act, concerted political action which is foundational in progressive politics. Now, Mike concedes that we should worry about government being the ones that actually implement uh, speech restrictions. Uh, there's no question that we might worry, for example, that if we do have speech restrictions, the wrong people, quote unquote, will come into control of the government and write and implement the speech restrictions in a way that certainly are not consistent with progressive values. So progressives might like to control speech if they run the show and be less enamored of those controls if they don't. What Mike does not address that I want to, based on my, frankly, professional and personal experience, is to talk less about the dangers to free speech from deliberate manipulation, although we should worry about that, but from what I call the effects of bureaucratic control. Uh, the fact of the matter is that sometimes uh, we ought to worry about how the law is just develops through the dynamics of bureaucratic interpretation and administration. There's not a question here of good guys and bad guys, simply the unintended consequences of a proliferating regulatory regime built around core free speech protections. Let me give you a quick example of something that brought my attention to this many years ago, and I fear I told John this story before. I'm 66, I do repeat myself. Um, but if I have, I apologize. But I remember one time I was at my desk and I got an email with a request for legal, legal advice from a recreational biking club in California. And I don't normally give legal advice over the internet for all sorts of reasons. Um, and it doesn't have to do with wanting to charge everybody who crosses my path, as many lawyers do. It has simply to do with that's not the appropriate forum in which to represent a client. But this was a cri de cur from California. This was a bike club that suddenly decided that is. It made an expedition in the territory in which it was operating. It wanted to leaflet, it wanted to produce leaflets and drop off leaflets that opposed the re-election of an incumbent member of Congress on the Republican side. And the question that 
this bike club put to me was, well, how do we do this without uh, running into legal liability? So I thought, you know, every now and then you break a rule because you feel like a reasonable person ought to be able to get legal advice without running up a large tab or having to go to a large law firm in Los Angeles. And so I started to think about what my response would be, and I started writing an email with all the sort of usual reservations that this is, you know, you really ought to consult a lawyer, and I'm just giving you a general idea. I'm trying to spot issues for you and so forth. And then I wrote several paragraphs, issue spotting under the campaign finance laws. And then I sat back in my chair and looked at what I had written, and I was completely horrified. I mean, this was a bike club. This was not a Trotskyite conspiracy, right? This was not a cell that needed to be smoked out to protect the security of the United States. My advice at the end of the way, don't do it. That was my advice. And if we are operating under a regime in which order to be a citizen, you might have to become a client, I think we're uh, operating on the wrong path. And this is what worries me when Mike sets up a standard like the one that I'm now citing from his article. This is his, I think, Mike, a fair statement of what's in your document as sort of the general direction in fashioning speech controls that we ought to go. He writes, we need to balance, this is on page 19 of his, his article, we need to balance between competing speech so as to maximize overall speech opportunities. And then we need to balance those speech opportunities against non-speech costs so as to produce the most speech at the least cost. I don't know a gang of legislators that I would trust to do it, and I know I do not uh, trust a band of regulators acting on the congressional directive to affect the outcome successfully. I'm very concerned about what the outcome would be. And the ultimate concern I have is with the burden that this would impose on doing politics. Two more minutes. Oh, this is four minutes and 35 seconds. Oh, you've been on the slide. Oh, okay. Go on. Okay. So, how do you like that? Um, just a very quick two minute quibble. Money and property, Citizens United, the history of money and politics. You know, progressives might point you to 1968 and 2004 and 2008, and maybe even this year, and say the control of property, the control of wealth in the fulfillment of political objectives does not always work to the advantage of the right. It can be extraordinarily important to the left. And I found over recent years, the most aggressive progressive forces are less concerned with denying resources to the right and more concerned with amassing the resources they need to accomplish their own political purposes. Many of them won't say it publicly, but they're thrilled with the opportunities opened up by the making of independent expenditures under Citizens United, which has been less exploited by commercial corporations, in fact, hardly at all, but has become a, a ground for very aggressive spending by ideological groups opposing themselves in the, in the, in the political arena. Um, I believe I will conclude then by saying one more thing about Mike's response, a comment about uh, free speech sensibilities. Uh, Professor Collins thought maybe free speech culture worked best. Uh, the concern that I would have is that uh, it's very difficult to imagine preserving a free speech culture or preserving free speech sensibilities if we don't have robust protections for free speech itself. It's not clear to me how that works. But more importantly, as a progressive, I am concerned about the effects of a narrowed view of the protections of the First Amendment on the critical progressive project of doing politics. Thank you. So let's just take a few minutes here uh, before we go to Q&A to have, uh, I'll sort of control it here, but before we go to Q&A to have responses if you want. Mike, would you like to say sure. anything? 
and I, I, I'll try not to take more than a couple of minutes. So first, uh, thanks to both Ron and Bob for way too generous praise, most of which I'm glad to say they took back when they got to the merits. Um, so, so Ron says, he, Ron issued a direct challenge to me. He said, which of these people are progressives? Um, and I guess what I want to say is um, it's entirely understandable that Ron is confused about who is a progressive because progressives are confused. Um, um, and so it's worth setting out again uh, just sort of how they're confused. So I, I would have said what, what is core to progressivism as opposed to, for example, libertarianism um, is a refusal to equate um, outcomes in markets with freedom. So um, um, workers who are forced to uh, work in unsafe conditions or forced to work uh, for less than a minimum wage or forced to work long hours, those are not free choices that they are making. Those, those people are coerced um, by private actors and then the second half of, of, of the progressive faith is not always, we, we have to uh, um, be pragmatic, but sometimes we can trust government uh, to reallocate um, um, outcomes from the market. And when, when government does so, sometimes it's making people more free rather than less free. Um, well, then the, the question arises, if that's what progressives think about everything else, why is that not also true about speech? Why is somehow, somehow the market perfectly allocates uh, property that makes speech necessary, but, but doesn't allocate uh, property that makes other, like having a, a decent wage necessary? I think that is a confusion that uh, progressives have, and so, um, when, for example, Bob says um, what he values is the ability to do politics, um, I'm all with him on that. I'm, I'm, with, I'm a big fan of, of Hannah Arendt and of other Republicans. Doing politics is an important part of what it means to be human, but why does he assume that uh, the only thing government does is get in the way of doing politics instead of facilitating doing politics. So uh, one of the things that prevents me from doing politics is, is uh, I don't own Fox News, okay? Um, and um, um, Fox News and, and the New York Times and MSNBC, they use their control over property to control who gets to do politics and who doesn't. Um, and so why is there an assumption that people are free in the absence of government with regard to speech, but not with regard to, um, to anything else? So I think that's a confusion that progressives have to work out. Okay, just one other point. Um, how they work it out is a hard question, um, but the notion that what we want is for the Supreme Court to try to work this out for us strikes me as um, uh, really bizarre. So um, I am all for people having open minds. I'm for the ability to, for people to do politics. I can't for the life of me understand what on earth that has to do 
with striking down a law that prevents uh, pharmacists from revealing the names of their patients to drug manufacturers or, or that controls the way in which merchants state their prices. Let's be real about it. That's what um, free speech law today is all about. It has nothing to do with what Ron and Bob and I, for that matter, value. And when, when Bob says that uh, he's, it's hard to imagine a free speech culture providing, uh, pr being preserved without the Supreme Court doing what it's doing now, I, I just really don't get that. I think, um, and here I have a, a learned hand on my side, um, in the end, what matters um, is not what the Supreme Court does, um, not what people in, in a kind of uh, authoritarian way insist the Constitution must mean. Um, what matters is that um, ordinary Americans um, value dialogue and having an open mind, thinking about things, and tolerating dissent. If, if the American people lose that, uh, the Supreme Court is not going to save us. Ron, briefly. Um, learned hand, the spirit of liberty. Uh, is a great line uh, and one that progressives should adhere to. But when they do, they should be mindful of the fact that he wrote the opinion in the Second Circuit denying the First Amendment claim in the Dennis case, one of the low points uh, in our First Amendment history. Um, there was a time when the ACLU was seen as progressive. Um, I suspect that, uh, Michael, uh, you no longer see it as such. I, based on your article, I would assume that the group that most aligns itself with your views is the National Lawyers Guild, um, uh, which is fine, but I, I just think it's important to get clear on these issues. Um, I think the real complaint in your article cannot be confined to the First Amendment. It seems to me that the real problem is with the notion, the contemporary notion of rights brought to us by the Warren Court Revolution. The idea that the rights domain rules. Um, if you are indeed concerned, as I am, about uh, the poor and the powerless, then as Simone Weil put it in her book, The Need for Roots, the real focus needs to be on obligations owed to the poor and the powerless and not this obsession with rights. And so I would say to you that the very critique he is making of the First Amendment cannot in any way be limited to the First Amendment. It would apply across the board to any claim of right that might in any situation be seen as, if you will, undermining the uh, well-being of the poor and the powerless. If that's the critique, then make it. If that is the governing idea, then reveal it. If the problem is one that was created by your boss and the War Thurgood Marshall and the Warren Court, then let us discuss it. I think that is the real uh, issue that uh, undermine, that is underlies the arguments that he's made in his article. Thank you. Bob. 
I would want to just respond very quickly on two points. The first is uh, the comment that Mike made about uh, the government facilitating in some way uh, the conduct of politics. And I wrote it down. I'm not quite sure I fully captured how you, how you had how you put that to me, so I apologize. But I did want to say this, which is I think the government can facilitate in a way that we can all agree on by doing certain simple things. Again, it would have to make the case in public opinion, if you will. It would have to have the support of Congress, presumably then through its elected representatives, having tapped into the consent of their constituents. But an example, and it's, a, it's an easy one, is we ought to be spending more money so we have a functioning electoral system so that when people go to the polls, they can cast ballots in less than four hours and they can have some confidence that the ballots will be properly tallied and reported. And I think that confidence in our electoral system is something the government can facilitate and it can do so largely non-controversially. It is the extent, it is the attempt to micromanage that system for political gains that has created the problems that we have with government involvement in election administration, certainly on the state level in recent years. But when you get to the regulation of say campaign finance uh, and you have a rule that prohibits and there are such rules. Uh, elected officials from saying certain things because those things could be construed to be the solicitation of money and the definition of solicitation is one that focuses on solicitations that are expressed or implied and the regulators therefore put out samples of what public officials can say at state party fundraising events and what they can't say and precisely how they should say it. I don't think that that's at all useful and I don't think it promotes a, a culture of free speech in any way. The second thing is I don't want to defend the Supreme Court's decisions across the board on free speech issues. Uh, heavens forfend. I, I don't have that in mind at all. Uh, I, I, I'm not defending free speech in all of the doctrinal presentations we have today. Uh, I'm, I'm merely saying broadly that if we're talking at a foundational level about progressive values, then I think the First Amendment and protecting the First Amendment is absolutely vital to the ability of a progressive vision to be realized. So we're going to questions now. Uh, raise your hand, I'll recognize you. Please wait for the microphone. And it says here, announce your name and affiliation, but you don't have to, because anonymous speech matters. And <laughs> even at the, especially at the Cato Institute, uh, but I will insist that your comment be in the form of a question. The gentleman here in the first row, I believe, was first. Nico Perino with the Foundation for Individual Rights and in Education. I was struck by what you just said, uh, Ron, about uh, Professor Seidman's argument proving too much, which is an argument that David Cole actually recently made in the page of the New York Times. He said, uh, that if you believe that rights are more valued or can be used by more people, if you're, if you're rich, uh, then you'd have to make the same argument about abortion, the right to a criminal defense attorney or a good one to send your kid to private school. So my, my question is then, how do we make access to these rights equal? And what is sufficiently equal for these rights to be valuable? And then on the free speech question, uh, do you think this has diminished in recent years with access to social media, regardless of uh, how wealthy you are. I guess you have to have a cell phone, for example, or access to a computer, but it's not like it was in the 1970s, for example, when you needed to have more or less a newspaper. Uh, th those are both excellent questions. Um, so um, first of all, I, I, I think Ron's challenge is perfectly appropriate. 
um, and I am going to use a little bit of a dodge. I think that um, a lot of what I say, I say does apply to other rights as well. Um, in fact, um, in, in the early part of the 20th century when progressivism was beginning, uh, a lot of progressives, people like John Dewey, as, although he later changed his mind, opposed rights generally on just the grounds I'm stating, that, that it's more kind of Lochnerism. But what I would want to say is I, I wrote an article about free speech. I didn't write an article about uh, abortion rights or, or right to gay marriage. And, and I do think these things rest on their own bottoms. Um, one of the things progressives like to think of themselves as is also being pragmatic. So I think I would have different responses with regard to uh, different rights. Um, with regard to what um, can make access to rights more equal? I think uh, I, th there's a simple answer, but implementing it is really complicated. Uh, the simple answer is um, we need a more equal distribution of, of uh, wealth and income in the United States so that people can actually take advantage of rights in, in a more equal fashion. Bringing that about uh, without, for example, harming incentives and so on, or, or having unintended consequences, that is a very complicated question. But that, that, that is ultimately what we need. Um, what about the proliferation of media? Does that make the situation better? In, in some respects, it obviously does. Uh, but I don't think it solves the problem. Um, the, the difficulty it creates is that things like uh, Twitter and Facebook produced just this huge mass of undifferentiated speech. And for anybody to actually use it, uh, you need somebody to sort the speech. Uh, people who, are, who filter it and provide some of it to some people and some of it to other people. Uh, the folks who do that think um, Mark Zuckerberg. They, th those are people who, who uh, are not subject to our control and who aren't actually necessarily acting in the public interest, their economic incentive uh, is to provide people with speech that they already agree with. And so we have this phenomenon now of siloing, which I think is very dangerous to, um, to our democracy. People like me can just go through life without realizing that there's anybody on the other side, anybody who's a conservative, um, and Facebook facilitates the ability to do that, and, and I think that's a bad thing. Any other responses? Uh, gentleman on the aisle, I think, was second. Remember that, speaking of equity, I just look around. You maybe looked over. It's nothing intentional. Um, yes. Um, yes, I'm Randy Foreman. Um, I wanted a question for Robert Bauer, and I want to say I appreciate your thoughts about campaign finance and progressivism and your stand on there. Um, I want to get your thoughts on um, Pekin's Coy's often retained document examiner, Reed Hayes, and his view concurring with the Sheriff of Ohio investigation conclusion that the April 27, 2011 release of the Obama birth certificate matches the nine unique points of forgery with the birth certificate of Johanna Ani. Can you explain what uh, um, your thoughts on his Here's view? Me. I, I, I don't understand the question, but um, I, I can assure you, having uh, not had to look hard into the matter, that President Obama was born in the United States. 
Should we also <laughs> say, I think uh, this is a private forum, so questions on topic also. Or, gentlemen, second from the left side of the uh, room is also asking most of the questions. Mike McGough from the Los Angeles Times editorial page. This is a somewhat self-interested sounding question, but I want to ask um, Professor Seidman if granting that you're right that there is a, a sort of uh, property linkage to current First Amendment doctrine on the Supreme Court, whether you think that doctrine would allow some of the scenarios we're now hearing about how to save newspapers by, for example, um, having government by, maybe by, Congress. By, by what? Uh, saving newspapers by having subsidies from government. Uh -huh. Senator Cardin a few years ago proposed some legislation that would involve some support. The trade-off would be that the newspapers wouldn't editorialize, as I remember, in, in political campaigns. You have the, you have the forum doctrine, um, so if, let's say, Congress wanted to do this to prop up failing newspapers, um, could, could they do that or would you start having the Supreme Court saying this is a public forum, that the Republican Congress can't decide to support only Republican newspapers, a Democratic-controlled newspaper, Congress can support only Demo liberal newspapers, would the Miami Herald versus Tornello decision have to go, which says you have a First Amendment right to refuse to print um, replies from politicians you criticize? Could you play with that scenario a little bit? So um, the, the question you've asked, if I understand it correctly, is not what I think we ought to do, but, but what the state of the doctrine is. And... Um, so I'm going to give you first a general answer and then a more specific answer. The general answer is that um, the law of uh, unconstitutional conditions or of conditional offers is um, um, a mess. And I don't myself think that it, there is a solution to the problem. So we have these... Um, these intuitions that are, are uh, wildly inconsistent. So for example, um, nobody thinks that, um, or almost nobody thinks that the government could fund the Republican convention but not the Democratic convention. On the other hand, nobody thinks that if the government runs an essay contest uh, for an Honor America essay contest that they uh, would have to give the prize to a terrific essayist who said that um, America sucked, right? So, so, so the law is a mess. Um, that said, I think it is reasonably clear that uh, subsidies that are um, um, conditional on people giving up uh, standard First Amendment rights, like the right to editorialize, are, uh, are unconstitutional. So I think that um, the kind of thing you're talking about um, would be, uh, probably would be struck down by the Supreme Court. It is, uh, that produces a paradox, and that's why the law about this is a mess, because it's not at all clear why newspapers are worse off because they're given the choice of accepting the subsidy or not uh, than they would be if the subsidy were not offered in the first place. But 
there you have it. I, if you want my prediction, I think the court would invalidate a law like that. So let me just uh, put a question in here before, as we run short on time. You know, I think coming into this, uh, or just seeing Mike's paper or talking to a progressive person that you knew to be progressive, the actual thing that they would probably say at this point in time uh, that would lead them to think the progressive shouldn't be for free speech or the free speech doctrine as it exists is the topic of hate speech or extreme speech or whatever you want to call it. Free uh, hate speech is not an exception to the First Amendment. That is, it, it, it has uh, protections uh, under the First Amendment. That hasn't been definitively decided, but it, for all practical purposes, it looks uh, very much in that direction, and we could assume that. Is that, a, is that the existence of speech that is in various ways uh, hostile to vulnerable populations, minorities, and so on? Is that part of this argument? And if so, uh, we know there's been a famous book written on hate speech and the harm it does. Is that something that progressives should look to as uh, being a reason not to be for free Can speech? Can I put a tail on that kite? What's that? Can I put a tail on the kite of the, your question? Sure. Um, you can do So I would ask, was Snyder versus Phelps, from a progressive point of view, rightly decided, the Westboro Baptist Church, and was Brandenburg versus Ohio um, rightly decided from a um, progressive point of view, and if so, why? I think I prefer John's question. <laughs> um, but but I, I'll, I'll try to answer Ron's question. Uh, I, I'd have to think more about Ron's specific question. But look, I think hate speech is, is a good example of, of why thinking about free speech in terms of constitutional law gets in the way of sensible thought. So. Um, when, when you think about this um, just from a constitutional law perspective, um, I, I do think that there is, um, if you will, a, a free speech problem with hate speech because I do think in some circumstances um, it has the capacity of silencing other speech. And so if you want to maximize the amount of speech that's out there, um, maybe as a constitutional law matter, um, hate speech regulation should be um, mandatory and not, not, uh, not impermissible. Now, having said that, I am, if, if you'd sort of stop thinking about this in terms of highfalutin constitutional doctrine and start thinking about it the pragmatic way, the, which is the way you can think when you're not focused on the Constitution, I am mostly persuaded by Nadine Strosen's book, where the last time I was here, actually, was her presentation on the book. And, and the argument that she makes quite powerfully, um, it's, I, I, I'm not persuaded that as a matter of constitutional doctrine, hate speech regulation um, should be banned. I am mostly persuaded that on the ground, when people actually try to do it, they don't do a very good job of it. And pro in many ways, it probably does more harm than good. The risks are greater than the benefits. And progressives, that's the way progressives used to think, right? You, you, you do cost-benefit analysis. You think about what works and doesn't work and, and act in a pragmatic way. And on pragmatic grounds, I think there are uh, good reasons to oppose 
a lot of hate speech regulation. If I, if I just may, then, yeah. Michael, you've confused me more than ever. Uh, I, my, my head is twirling. Oh, so Ron, I, I am so sorry. I will pay your therapy bills <laughs> if I have to. Okay, well, he's on record. Um, so far be it for me, but I thought that Breyer, Ginsburg, and Kagan were progressives, but they signed on to the majority opinion in Snyder. And I guess the progressive view was by the dissent, Samuel Alito. I think progressives are confused. Um, and so it's not surprising that you're confused about who is a progressive. They have internally contradictory positions and they haven't, look, look here's my favorite example. Um, here are two quotes from Bernie Sanders. They're not direct quotes, but they're close. Uh, Bernie Sanders says, um, in the United States of America, there's not a Democratic Party or a Republican Party. There's just a plutocrat party. And the entire federal government is in control of multi-billionaires who are out for their own interests. Bernie Sanders quote number one. Bernie Sanders quote number two. Here's what we should do about medical care in the United States. We should turn it over to the federal government. <laughs> we should have Medicare for all. Um, now, I guess Bernie Sanders is a progressive, but he's confused. You cannot believe both of those things at the same time. Well, first of all, because Mike has mentioned a couple of times, I'm not sure that progressives as a group are especially confused. I think everybody's confused. Uh, I've known confused conservatives. <laughs> no argument for I've me. known confused conservatives and confused libertarians. That is and I, certainly I've true. been known uh, to be confused. So I just wanted to mention that. I, I also, by the way, just want to say very quickly on Bernie Sanders. There's a. I, I didn't. I, I'm not saying this because I have any professional or political connection to Bernie Sanders, but I think his point would be he plans to first get the billionaires out of the government, then proceed with health care. That, so that's it, actually not his position. He was for medical Medicare for all now. But be, not 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 right. some in some future time when somehow the government is purged of the right. Well, I, I wealth. think that he thinks that if he's elected, billionaires will flee the government. <laughs> I think he, so. I think that's probably where he ends up. I, I just wanted to say the point you made about hate speech. This, this is a really really um, difficult issue, and of course, it gets played out both in the debates on hate speech codes on campus, um, but it, it's a question more generally. Uh, that has been addressed by others among my colleague uh, Jeremy Waldron at NYU in a, in a very provocative and interesting book on hate speech. But the point that Mike makes about design and implementation is exactly the problem that I was identifying in the signal case of campaign finance reform, which is the design and implementation issues across the board when you try to decide how to manage against particular harms of speech have proven to be sort of overwhelming. Uh, and I will just close by saying there is one thing, however, in the design that time and time again you can detect that progressives, progressives would necessarily have to be concerned about. And that is there may not be the best technical design, there may not be the most thoroughgoing, rigorous implementation, but contrary to what the Supreme Court says in its remarkable and utterly misleading passages in McConnell versus Federal Election Commission, the one thing out of the history of campaign finance regulation that you can see imprinted on design is political self-interest. That the, that the people who make the rules are at least often drawn to make a substantial number, not all of them, not all of them. There are you know, ideological and principled commitments to ensure reflected in campaign finance regulation, but the overlay 
of either incumbent or political party interests from the very beginning throughout the entire history of campaign finance regulation is unmistakable. And so when we address design issues, it's really hard to escape that particular problem. One last question from Cato adjunct scholar Bob Corn-Revere. Uh, I'm Bob Corn-Revere from Davis Wright Tremaine, and I too am confused. Uh, actually, just being a, a working lawyer and not an academic, I have to say, Professor Seidman, I don't really understand the premise of what you're arguing here. And I have two questions. One goes to your critique of First Amendment law and doctrine, and the second went to what you describe as the sensibility of free expression. On doctrine, I see this list that you've set forth of cases that you say that uh, create the, the First Amendment as a sword to be used against people who uh, lack power. Uh, yet on that list, I see cases like United States versus Stevens, where it was the power of the federal government against an individual of modest means who was going to go to jail unless his free speech rights were protected. But there's sort of a, a larger issue where you criticize cases like Citizens United because of your concern that money equates to speech, or rather money spent on expression is protected as speech. And then you also suggest that um, Holder versus Humanitarian Law Project, Project was incorrectly decided because it criminalized material support for groups listed as terrorist organizations. I, so well, is material support speech or not? And, and that's the, the doctrinal question. The question about First Amendment sensibilities goes to your quote from Learned Hand, and which I very much admire, his 1944 essay, The Spirit of Liberty, and particularly the line that you quoted from that, saying that the sensibility is one that is not too sure that it is right. And I guess my question is, how do you square that sensibility with the notion that the First Amendment is broken unless it guarantees the outcome for your political philosophy? No, no. So, um, first of all, um, I, I want to associate myself with Bob that there's no disgrace in being confused, but, but there is a disgrace in confusing people. And so if, I, if I've confused you, that's my fault, and I, I should try to be uh, clearer about, about what I think. Um, just addressing your last point first, um, it's not my position that uh, the First Amendment is valuable only if it causes progressives to win. I, in, in my article, I, was, I tried to be very clear that uh, there, there are reasons, or there might be reasons to support the First Amendment that have nothing to do with progressivism. Uh, there are values that uh, are not progressive that the First Amendment might promote, and, and, um, and people might well favor the First Amendment for those reasons. My point about uh, neutrality was precisely because the First Amendment is supposed to be neutral, therefore it can't promote progressivism because that's not neutral. And I, I, I think you would agree with that, right? So, so that's why the First Amendment's not progressive because it's supposed to be neutral and therefore it can't, progressivism is a, a contestable view, and, and if the First Amendment were progressive, it wouldn't be neutral. Um, now, about um, very, the various cases that the Supreme Court has decided, I actually did not um, say anything about which of those I agreed with and which I disagreed with. I, my, my general approach is, I think, uh, this, as with most things, the Supreme Court 
mostly mucks things up, and so should, they ought to not be involved in stuff like this at all. I do think that the decisions uh, you mentioned are decisions that start with the assumption that people are free when the government doesn't act, that um, um, people are made free when Congress makes no laws. That is a position that my guess is you share and that um, many people in this room share. It's not a position that I have, and it's not a position that I think most progressives have. Progressives worry, yes, sometimes the government can be oppressive, but sometimes uh, private forces are, are oppressive also. When, this, when uh, the Congress passed the 1964 Civil Rights Act that controlled the ability of private people to keep African Americans out of their establishment, that made people more free rather than less free. Uh, and that can be true of government regulation of, of private power with regard to speech markets as well. So this has been, I think, for many people, a somewhat unexpected panel uh, that progressives would be at Cato and talking about free speech. I want to end on an unexpected note. We've talked, I think, in all, and I think I can say uh, Mike's comments about uh, free speech sensibility, uh, Ron's comments about free speech culture, we can agree on that across whatever we might disagree, that it's important to have a free speech culture. But there's another point, which is that cultures depend very much on leadership and on what elites do and the kind of signals they send. I recall now that uh, in this regard, uh, Bob's old boss, Barack Obama, in discussing both hate speech and free speech on uh, campus, took that responsibility very seriously at a, at a very critical time, I think, in which he stood up and said, you really have to hear other voices. You really shouldn't be involved in censorship. It's very important that leaders of the country foster that culture and that presidents do so also. And Important, I think, the presidents not say, as has been said not too long ago, the people who stand up for freedom of, speech, freedom of speech are being foolish. On that point, I want to thank all three of our panelists uh, for a great uh, panel, I think. We haven't decided what progressivism should do, but maybe we'll have to come back and talk about it some more. I want to thank you for coming. Right now, we're a little bit late. We're going upstairs to the George M. Yeager Conference Center, which is on the second level here at Cato. You go up the spiral staircase. Your restroom's on the second floor on your way to, to your lunch. Look for the yellow wall. Thanks very much for coming. <laughs>